0: The young teenager seemed a little insignificant as he watched it, walked into the Amarillo Chevy dealership. It's about 20 years ago. We're in blue jeans and a sweatshirt. Just so happens that one of their youngest salesmen, about 21 years old, had just finished his training to be a salesman. So the manager of the Chevrolet dealership took a man aside that had been there for 20 years and he'd retired, and he was only coming in on a couple days a week just to keep busy. He was a board member at a, one of my relatives' churches in Amarillo. And this is the story he tells me. The young man as uh, around June of the year in the high school, the Sandys, they call them, Amarillo High, was notorious for sending high school kids, or by design they wanted to show up to test drive cars because of graduation gifts. So they drive them, and the boss finally said, okay, but don't let it get out of hand because we don't have the gas at that point in time. So somebody has to ride with them, but if they want to buy one, mom and dad always sign, they make a payment, and we sell a car. So in walked this young man, tattered sweatshirt, blue jeans, and tennis shoes, and he said, I'd like to, let me guess, test drive a Camaro. Yep, you're right. He said, I need your driver's license, and then I'll give you a ride. I have to ride with you. So the boss said for the 21-year-old to come over, and he said, get your feet wet and take this guy for a ride. Just make sure everything's fine, and he shows up with no dings in it. So he drove around the block a couple of times, and he came back and parked the Camaro, and he put it in gear in park, and he looked at the brand-new salesman. He goes, "Uh, pretty nice car. He goes, I'm glad you like it. What do you like about it? And he went through a litany of why the colors were good, the power and all that. He said, how would you like to pay for it? He said, I think I'll pay cash. Well, he said, this is, a back then, an $18,000 car. He goes, that's all right, I'm graduating from high school, and my dad's helping me out. He goes, okay, and the salesman reached for the door to get out, and he goes, I'll take 19 more. He said, 19 more what? 19 more Camaros. He said, this is a joke. Let's go in the store in the in the showroom. So he goes in and he goes up to the service manager and says, or the sales manager and he says, I know I'm new, but is this a joke? And the guy sets his newspaper down. And he goes, What are you talking about? The kid in the, the jeans and the tattered sweatshirt and the tennis shoes. Well, what about him? He wants to buy a car. Well, sell him a car. No, you don't get it. He wants 20. So he calls in another one of his buddies and says, you know what's going on with the kid in the blue jeans and the sweatshirt? He goes, never seen him before. Isn't he from in the high school? No, I haven't seen him either. He's got a funny accent. He says, send him in here. He said, son, is, is this a joke? We got guys that are doing work today, and, and uh, we got a lot of things we need to do. So what's going on? He goes, you're a car dealership, right? Yeah. That's what it says. Chevrolet. I'd like to buy 20 Camaros. Well, just exactly how are you going to pay for them? He goes, well, my, my dad's arranging that. He goes, Who, who's your dad? Well, he's at the Amarillo Marriott right now. Who's your dad? Well, he's here for an OPEC conference. Um, what's your dad's name? And it was about this long. He said, he's the prince to the Sharif in Dabi, Abu Dhabi. He said, my dad's one of the king's sons. And he slid a black credit card across the table, and he said, that should cover it. They picked up the phone. They called the Marriott and Amarillo, and they said, can we talk to him? Yes, is there a problem with my card? No. Is my son a problem? No. What can you do for me? We'll sell you 20 Camaros. The moral of the story is what might seem insignificant and routine, isn't always that. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 1 and look at a couple that I've titled the message A, a Marriage Made in Heaven, or we could say A Marriage That Saved the World. Matthew chapter 1, as Porter read this morning, and we're going to look at verses 1, or excuse me, chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. I'd like to lay out right this morning as we unpack this set of verses, three points about this verse or about this passage. Number one, this marriage made in heaven was preordained by God. Number two, not only was it preordained by God, but it was prophetic in purpose. And number three, not only being prophetic in purpose, It promises God's presence with us now. It was preordained by God. It was prophetic in purpose. And then it proves and reinforces God's presence with us now. Before we open his word, let's talk to the Lord and ask him to open our hearts and minds to what he has to say this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the fact that we can celebrate your life. Thank you for the song we just heard. So I pray for the Holy Spirit to be able to soften the hard hearts that might be here today. The wounded hearts, the skeptic hearts, doubting hearts. And I pray that they would make room for the King of Kings. The Prince of Peace, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. Our Savior, Emmanuel. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable. I pray that the words that we have from your word would enter our minds and hearts to help us change the way we think, be encouraged by what we hear, and motivated to share what we hear with those who are lost. We give you praise and thanks for the privilege of being here today. Bring peace to Israel. Bring peace to our hearts. Save those who are hurting. Because you have told us from your word that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved eternally. Thank you for this narrative today. We celebrate the life of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the new addition to the Sexton Homecoming soon. I pray that we will encourage them as a body of believers. Thank you again, Lord, for today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Marriage made in heaven. It was preordained by God. Look at verse 18, verses 18 and 19 once again with me as we share God's word. And it says quite frankly, now put on your seatbelts. I'm reading from another translation because I think it reads a little different and a little clearer. It comes from the New Living Translation. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19. Joseph, to whom he was engaged, was a, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man, and did not want to disgrace her, disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. Consider under God preordaining this relationship, two people that he instituted, that were obedient followers. First, look at Joseph. Look how he's described as a faithful man who showed compassion and empathy. Listen once again to what the Scriptures say. But before they came together, she found that she was to be with child through the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to think about what that would sound around the water cooler when Joseph goes into the carpenter shop. Hey, Joseph, aren't you engaged to that Mary girl? Yeah? Well, what's going on? Well, what do you mean? Well, you can tell what's going on, man. What's up? You know, according to the law, you can end this and have no shame. And he could. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 tells us that if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him and finds something indecent about her, he can write her a certificate of divorce and give it to her and send her from his house. Joseph was not only a faithful man, but he was one who was sensitive to the obedience of the Spirit of God. Because as we read farther in the passage, it says Joseph, because Joseph was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace. There's the empathy. I want to stop right there and make an action point. It gets really easy in a local church when we're all familiar when we've grown up together, when we've matured in Christ, to look down our nose at people that don't really fit the bill, can't we? Let's be honest. It's easy. Here am I, Lord. Send Frank. Here am I, Lord. Send Rocky. I don't think I could do that. Joseph was faced with an opportunity that no one would have thought twice about to say, you're doing the right thing. She's not really yours. She's someone else's because she's pregnant. Now tack on top of that when he goes back to the water cooler and says it's not from someone, it's from the Spirit of God. Imagine how that would sound today because there are skeptics today that say this doesn't happen. That's impossible. But with God, nothing's impossible. I hope you believe that. I stand here today because I believe that. I don't understand all of God's plan all the time. And I'm sure when Joseph went to bed that night and we read about Mary's confrontation with Gabriel, they're both laying in bed looking at the stars going, this was not what I expected. How is this going to work out? It's the day you plan something on vacation and the axle goes out on the camper, the gas tank leaks and you look and go, I wasn't planning this. This is a big deal. But we don't find anywhere in Scripture in these two verses that say anything about Joseph questioning God in the sense of that's not right. Remember what uh, uh, Mary said at the end of that discussion with Gabriel? It is as you say, I will do what God says. And I think that's an example of faithfulness. I think that's an example of empathy because if one doesn't happen, the other one will not. You see, Joseph was righteous, and because he was righteous, he was compassionate and he was empathetic. Where is your heart towards others around you? Because if the first part is right, everything else falls into place. So we see it's preordained by God, and we see Joseph as a person who's faithful and compassionate. Take a look at Mary. And we've already read Luke 1, 26 to 38. Mary was humble and obedient to the Spirit's leading. What's important about that is I'd like to make this point like I did with Joseph. She still had questions, but she trusted God in spite of them. She still had questions. And I think that's okay because she wasn't like a relative, or not a relative. If you read in the first part of Luke, of Zachariah's confrontation with Gabriel, he said, how can this be? The two together have contrasting responses. Zachariah was gouting, and my wife and I were talking about this this week, and she goes, it's interesting because Zachariah was, in essence, the high priest, the pastor. And when Gabriel showed up, when he was behind the curtain, he's afraid, which is normal, because in Old Testament times, anyone who references or faces an angelic being usually didn't live to talk about it. But God had a purpose in his life. He said, before you die, you will see the Messiah. And he did, days later. But before his wife gave birth, God said what? Or through Gabriel, you're, you're not going to speak. This is John the Baptist's dad. I'm, I'm getting two prophets turned around, so you'll correct me after the service. John the Baptist's dad couldn't speak. He didn't trust God. Then we go take the picture and move to Mary. She said... It's as as you say, I trust what you say. When you get the report from the doctor, or a phone call from across the ocean, or somebody calls from the war department, and you know it was God's will that they go, they're missionaries. Nothing can happen to a missionary. My son is safe, my daughter is safe because they're in the military. My son and my wife, they're healthy. Nothing will happen. But when God changes plans, he changes our hearts too. Because his plans don't always fall in with our agenda, does it? And with Mary and Joseph, it was an earth-shattering thing. Jophus had to look at the bride that he was betrothed to, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. That was a big deal. A year-long engagement so they could get to know each other better. And right into the beginning of the betrothal, Joseph, I'm going to have a baby. What? I thought, me too. But the scriptures show us that Joseph was a righteous man. He trusted God, even though he didn't have all the answers. Mary trusted God. To the point where he said, where she said, your will is what will happen. I trust what you say. Not only we see that Joseph and Mary revealed that this was a preordained wedding or marriage. Secondly, the second point, this had a prophetic purpose. Look at verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. This is Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home. I want you to remember that phrase. It's going to be significant in a couple of moments. Take her home to be your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Listen very carefully to this definition regarding God's fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy is key to understanding and appreciating the power and presence of God. To the believer, it is our hope as those who have no hope. Scripture is replete with promises of a coming Messiah. Do you know a major portion of your Bible speaks to prophecy and Jesus' return? In the book of 1 Thessalonians alone, at the end of every chapter, Paul says, I can't wait for Jesus to come back. When he comes back, be ready. All five chapters end with the talk of Jesus' return. A major portion of the Bible speaks to that. And upon fulfillment reinforces in our hearts those that are his believers of his followers God's promise of a new life. God always does what he says. God always fulfills his promise. So Mary and Joseph could relax, so to speak, entrusting the will of God that wasn't part of their agenda. So secondly, we see this prophetic purpose fleshed out. Four four R's here, if you're taking notes. First of all, it's regarding Joseph's royal heritage. Don't skip over that insignificant little phrase that says son of David. Incidentally, I'd like you to rehearse in your mind what God said to David through Solomon and all the other prophets that you will have a son on the throne until eternity. And this is a reference to that, and it's an postcard, if you will, of the promise of God that he'd fulfill his kingdom through David. And Joseph is in the lineage of David. Number two, the, the uh, angel was reassuring and comforting. He addressed the concern to Joseph when he said, don't be afraid. To John the Baptist's dad, as he stood in the Holy of Holies, don't be afraid. To Mary, don't be afraid. To the shepherds, what did he say? Fear not. Don't be afraid. Take that home to you, with you today. And I want you to think of a God that sometimes is is portrayed as a, a mean guy with a long beard that sits on an ice castle hill throwing thunderbolts. That he doesn't care about people. And the reference to Christians always comes out judgmental, legalistic. They don't care about people. All they care about is their church. I don't get that from this God because he's reassuring. He's comforting. Announcing the birth of his son that would overwhelm everybody, even shepherds in the field, who, by the way, were tending sheep that would be used for slaughter at the sacrifices in the temple. He showed up and said, the ultimate sacrifice is coming. So he reinforced the royal heritage of David. Number two, he reassured and comforted those who were with Joseph and Joseph. Number three, he reinforced the miraculous act on the part of the Holy Spirit. He didn't pull any punches. He said, what's happened to Mary is from me. This act of God proves to you that with me nothing is impossible. The insignificant stone mason. Jesus says in his word, he's a carpenter. History shows us that there wasn't so much with timber and nails, but he was probably a mason. And we have history to report that Jesus was probably laid in a stone carved out feed bin. And it's very interesting when Mary and Joseph came into Bethlehem, he probably stayed at his relative's hotel. You don't get this from history but uh, my pastor back in Kokomo just visited Israel and the guy that had him Uh, took him around the city had indicated that probably he was staying at a relative's place but due to the fact that mary was going to give birth to a child and they were still worried about purification processes they said you need to stay in the lowest possible spot in the hotel because we don't want anyone defiled from the temple so she was probably with the relative's family Don't email me and tell me you found a commentary somewhere because I'll agree with you. It just amazed me to see there's a dynamic here that we never thought about. But the process also falls in line with the Old Testament. So now we find out the the royal heritage of David. We see the re-encouragement of the angel with Joseph. We see that this reinforces God's miraculous act. And the last one I just love It was redemptive in purposes. When we look at the prophetic purpose of Jesus' birth, yes, heritage is important. It was promised in 2 Samuel, David, your son, will sit on the throne precursor to the Messiah. Joseph, I got this. It's of me. Trust me. Thirdly, I'm the one that does the impossible. Fourth, it's redemptive because the Bible tells us in Jesus' name that his main needs Savior. So we've seen that this is preordained by God, this relationship. It's prophetic in purpose. And then lastly, it promises God's presence with us now. I'd like you to look closer at verses 22 and 23. And it reads as follows. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophets. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son. And they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Not only does his title and name mean Savior, it means one who comes beside us. Let that sink in, folks, this morning as we celebrate with Christmas cards and chocolate-covered pecans and lots of coconut pie, at least in our house. The God that promises to save us while we were yet sinners promises us His presence for those who will come to him by faith. It promises God's presence with us now. Verse 23 reads again, The virgin will conceive a child. You'll name him Emmanuel. His name means God with us. Two things stand out to me, first of all, in this present. Foretold by the prophets, and I go back to the rehearsal of prophecy. God said this, a couple hundred years before it happened, and it happened to the T. Now let me throw out some prophetic encouragement to you. Your newspaper today looks a lot like the Old Testament, doesn't it? Your New Testament in the book of Matthew looks a lot like the headlines at Fox News. Wars, rumors of wars, famine, earthquakes, fires. In the words of Jack wortzen and harry balbeck our regem- our redemption draweth nigh and we need to be ready we need to be willing to share the truth of the gospel we need to be settled in our mind that a miraculous act of god is a promise of his presence that we can trust his word because god always does what he says he's faithful to his word Foretold by the prophets, verse 23b also encourages the fact that we understand through Jesus' title his desire to have fellowship with us. I'd like you to hear just a little snippet from an author by the name of Chaim Bentorah. He's entitled a book, or a section from his book, Hebrew Study, Betrothed to Jesus. And it's very interesting because in Hosea 2.19, It says in the King James Version, I will betroth thee to me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness, in loving kindness, and in mercies. The only time it references being married to God is in this verse in the Old Testament when it talks about Jesus coming to take us to heaven. What is meant in this word betroth? There's a Hebrew word which means to betroth. However, when you look at the... Talmud and a Semitic structure, it means this, to desire. Here's where it gets interesting. You all know in ancient times marriages were prearranged. And sometimes the bride and groom would meet for the first time on their wedding day. Thus it was understood there must be a period of time for the couple to learn and to love one another before the marriage was consummated. The length of time would vary. It would be more or less. The idea was that during the time the couple would begin to learn about each other And come to understand each other's minds and hearts. Imagine if we started doing that today. We'd be saving a lot of money on some weddings. After the first two months, she's thinking, he doesn't know how to spend money. She knows how to spend money. He wants to live on a farm. I want to live in the city. They had a year to figure all that out. Here's where it gets even more interesting. No one, not even the bride, knew when the bridegroom would reach the point of such a desire that he would want to snatch his bride away. Starts to sound like the New Testament now. Everyone in the village would excitedly await that day, waiting for the signs that the bridegroom was getting ready. The bride had a good idea and would be dressed and ready when the bridegroom came knocking on her door. Sounds like Matthew, doesn't it? The the ten virgins, some were ready, some weren't. And the picture is here, she's in her wedding dress because she's been looking out the window watching what's going on. Yep, I see that room going on next to my dad's house. It's getting pretty close. I hear the bells. I hear the singing. I'm going to the door. She wasn't sitting around in her wedding dress for a year. That'd be foolish. But she was waiting with her lamps trimmed and bright. And the example here is beautiful because it meshes out for us. It's not, it's, it's, not unlike a picture that we have of our lives here on earth. When we accept Jesus as Savior, we become betrothed to him. We live the remaining days of our life in a period of engagement to Jesus, learning to love him, spending time alone with him, and growing deeper in love with him until one day, one day, he can wait no longer and comes to take us to his father's house, according to John 14, verse 2. This provides a beautiful picture of that when he says he's building a room unto his father's house, and when finished, he will take us away from our present world to live in his. Lastly, point number four is a conclusion as we read simply verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke up, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded, and took Mary as his wife. But he did not have relations with her until her son was born, and Jesus named him... Joseph named him Jesus. It's simple, but you need to look at this two things he did. The conclusion is this. Joseph's actions can help us understand the importance of absolute trust in what God reveals through his word. Look at the two things he did that the angel said he needed to do at the beginning of this passage of Scripture. First, he said, take Mary as your wife. There may be ridicule. There may be discussion There may be harbored animosity. I am sure that in the course of Jesus' life, before he went to the cross, there were still family members going, yeah, you said it was the Spirit of God. We know how babies come in the world. You said you didn't have relations, and it was from the Lord. Believers, does that sound like some people that you share the gospel with? What do you mean I'm a sinner? What do you mean God hates sin? but he loves the sinner. You're you're a bigot. What about the people that are questioning our contentment and our purpose in Christ when we say no to certain social ills in our life because the Bible told us, if you stand for the Lord, you'll be persecuted. I imagine when when Joseph went to work, there were sneers, there were funny jokes made, But he was faithful to what God asked him to do. The two things that he asked him to do, he followed through on. When he awoke, he did as the angel commanded. He took Mary as his wife. I love that part because it reminds me of that God commendeth his love toward us and that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. I am not saying Mary was a sinner. I'm saying the task that Jesus took on himself in light of who we were he looked beyond that by his grace. So Joseph did exactly what the angel commanded him to do. He took his wife, Mary. Secondly, as simple as it may sound, what did, the, what did the angel tell Joseph to do? You shall call his name Jesus. And the ending of this chapter, it says right here, and Joseph named him Jesus. So what do we take home today as we wrap this up? I want to share three quick points. First, number one, is the reality that those seemingly less recognized personalities of Scripture were instrumental in God's purpose of redemption. We don't hear much about Joseph after Jesus' ministry. However, Joseph's reverent obedience to God's plan was paramount. So I want to give you this point as well. You are not insignificant in your part in the kingdom of God. You are not insignificant in the program of God because God knows exactly where you work, who you work with, what roads you drive down, what kid you sit by in chemistry class that's annoying, and the teacher that you don't like, you are in that class as a prominent, sovereign work of God. What will you do with what here and where he's placed you? You are not insignificant, number two. But no less insignificant is the fact that God's agenda is never interrupted. Just take a look at Matthew chapter 1. We won't read through it, but just take a cursory glance of the names of the women who were looked upon as prostitutes, foreigners, outcasts, yet our Savior arrived on time and in the place of God's choosing with the parents God picked and the people for his sovereign purpose. Nothing stops his agenda, not even our sin, not even the fighting amongst us, not even the conclusions we might have of doubt. I don't think Jesus is going, oh, Craig's having struggles today. I thought I, he doesn't do that. I see a loving father because I had it lived out in front of me. There are a lot of times when I sat down with my dad and I said, I got to talk to you something. And man, I was waiting for the belt to come off around that waist. Didn't happen. Ask me sometime about the day I wrecked this car. That was a really good one. I should have got more, but I didn't. But here's the point I'd like to make. God's words are sure and unchanging. His agenda is never interrupted. There were a whole lot of opportunities, even from the very beginning of the garden. I shared this with the Bible class and the senior high class. He said right away, right after Adam and Eve made their choice not to believe what he said, that he already planned on a bruised heel and a broken head on the serpent. Minutes after it took place in the garden. God's agenda is never interrupted. Number three, and we'll close. To dovetail off on that point number two, the power and relevance of Scripture is timeless. The pattern for faith is the same now as it was with Joseph and Mary in their time. My walk with God must be daily. As I seek his guidance in my decisions and relationships, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. I think about the last one, and I think of Joseph and Mary, who had to know the scriptures because they didn't doubt what the angel said, because they were reinforcing their faith with what they already knew. Love came down at Christmas. We hope you enjoyed this opportunity to hear the word preached at Factoryville Bible Church. Factoryville Bible Church is a non-denominational church in Athens, Michigan that seeks to share the good news of the gospel through a number of ministries in the area, including Factoryville Christian School, Camp Elvin, and the Passive Forward Shop. To learn more about the ministries at Factoryville Bible Church or to support the mission of our church, visit our website at factoryvillebiblechurch.com. Thank you.